Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people with news, views and expert interviews. Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Steve Randall and this time we're focusing on design with Brian Oknyansky, an architect who also designs shoes. A lot of what I work on architecturally doesn't land from outer space. It exists within a community that's already there where people already live and work. The context is important. The townscape is important. It forms the kind of architectural decisions you make on what you believe would not only fit the client brief, but make something interesting and elevate the the quality of the, the neighbourhood. More from Brian later, and joining me with more insights is Pete the Builder, Peter Finn, in just a moment. But have you heard that Constructive Voices is building a new radio station? It's available 24-7 all over the world at constructive-voices.com, don't forget the dash, and by asking Alexa to launch Constructive Voices. It's available already, and we'll be adding more shows in the coming weeks. With Constructive Voices Radio... The conversation is building. Constructive Voices media partner in Ireland and the United Kingdom is Construction Industry News. Since 2002, Construction Industry News has been focused on the very latest projects and developments within the UK and Ireland. So, Pete, how's things with you today? Steve, my man, good to talk to you again. Things are going good. Busy, busy as always, but things are going in the right direction. Brilliant. That's good to hear. Now, I have a bit of a, a, a trivia question for you. Or a, a, I suppose a, it's a riddle in a way. What do Chinese construction and shoes have in common? <laughs> what, a, what a very interesting uh, question. And if, if I was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and that was the final question, I would actually be delighted because I know the answer. Ah, oh, that's not fair. That's not fair. <laughs> the answer is our guest today, because uh, we've got a, a really, really interesting guy uh, coming on today, uh, Brian from Dialogue. Um, he's an architect. It's got uh, a, a, like a huge body of experience, a very uh, well-learned man and, and very well-traveled man, has um, had the, the opportunity to work on many different continents and to experience many different cultures. And uh, he also has had the opportunity to uh, not only design buildings very successfully, but he has also designed shoes or footwear very successfully. And it's a really interesting story as to how that actually uh, came together. I'm really looking forward to hearing it from the man himself and and finding out more about it. It's certainly something that's uh, unusual. So as always, Steve, we always... uh, come up with very interesting topics on uh, constructive voices, and this is certainly one of them. Well, yeah, it's interesting because you wouldn't naturally put those two things together. But actually, when you think about it, they're both structures. Uh, they're both, you know, sort of ha- have a necessity to be to be beautiful as well as functional. So, I mean, there are lots of ways in which uh, shoes and buildings uh, have definitely a synergy. And what we're going to be talking about, what Henry's going to be talking about with Brian is, I suppose, the, the the cultural sponge that he is, because he's worked in America and various other places in the West. But also he has this this real insight into how the Chinese operate in terms of their architecture. And as we've talked about before, in terms of sustainable building and new ways of building for different uh, or changing climates, this is going to be important, isn't it? Bringing all the ideas from all the different areas of the world into how we're building in the West or wherever we may be in the world. Yeah, look, I've said this several times before, Steve. I love dealing with people and I love talking to people from um, a perspective where 
they don't have tunnel vision. They don't have one way of thinking. They don't have a one fix all type of mentality. I love this. It really intrigues me when I hear, you know, someone who's gone on a, on a, on a journey, like any person that's traveled and seen different cultures, they've got stories to tell, perspectives that, you know, the ordinary day person doesn't see, doesn't get to experience and always accumulates into really interesting facts, really interesting knowledge. And if you have the ability then to be able to take that knowledge, take those cultural differences and blend them in with what you know and what you've seen when you've grown up and, and what you've learned just in your own culture, it always is a positive in my mind. It is always a, a way of, of showing integration and, and showing that cultures can blend together and can work together because at the end of the day, we're all humans. We may have different cultures. We may have different ways of doing things, but you know, we all have very similar functions in life. We all have sim- very similar needs and necessities. So Brian is a man who, uh, who certainly has put himself into a position where he can use all of that experience in his passion, which is architecture. So Really, really interesting stuff. Okay, well, let's uh, let's hear Henry talking to Brian, and then we'll come back and we'll talk some more very soon. My career actually started when I was 16 years old. I, I had an epiphany that I wanted to be an architect, and I happened to know AutoCAD, which is a very popular drafting program. And so that year, I went to the local architects and uh, told them I'd get them their coffee, their blueprints. They don't have to pay me. I just want to see what they do. Because I could draft, they gave me a job in the sunny streets of Los Angeles. So even before going to UD, deciding what you want to do and all that, um, I I was lucky enough to already know. So my career started early. It was on high-end residential mostly. Um, And then once I went to architecture school, I would be working kind of in the summers or throughout the years. And I wasn't beholden to kind of one office. One office I worked at, we worked on exhibition booths. Another office, I worked on airports. I graduated architecture school in Los Angeles and then got my first job out in uh, Beijing. And the reason I got my job out in Beijing is because I needed to find something to do for a year. Architecture in the United States is a five-year degree program. But of course, I'm always in a rush in my life and I did it in four years. So I had this administrative issue where this school that I went to for my master's degree said on paper I studied for four years rather than five, even though I have a full five-year degree. Uh, And so I filled the time by getting my first job out of architecture school in Beijing. I noted in a speech back in 2015 to London Metropolitan University, you talked about how you, quote, came to work across disciplines. Can you elaborate on that career path and especially the whole thing about the interdisciplinary sort of aspect of your career. So I mentioned that I had already a kind of uh, an eclectic exposure of architectural scales it, it, early on in my career, whether it was houses or airports or skyscrapers, for example. And the interesting thing about architecture schools, um, at least uh, the ones that I'm aware of, both in the United States and uh, in Europe, is that there isn't only an emphasis on drawing, for example, buildings. But there's also an emphasis on making. Um, so throughout architecture school, I worked in the wood shop, in the metal shop. I was one of the first uh, student staff at the architecture school to run the laser cutting laboratory. So I was always kind of looking for 
opportunities to work in places that let me explore my student projects beyond drawing, but uh, with model making or furniture making, for example. So what that did is it set up an understanding for me that whatever ideas come into my head, there's a solution or, or, or a way to communicate them graphically through drawing, but there's also uh, possibilities to use traditional tools and robotic tools to create them. That opened up opportunities for me to, if I ever had an opportunity to work in something outside of architecture, even though it wasn't something I was trained in, that I would have the confidence to say, well, I'll give it a shot because I have an idea about how I might be able to make certain things outside of what you would normally make in, in architecture. Right. Well, we'll come back to that very specifically about a certain product. But on your website, there are several building and design projects in China. And what I yeah. found interesting about them is that they, they are counter stereotypical of the image we have of the modern Chinese city with its you know forest of rectangular multi-story skyscrapers. Did you try and blend in Chinese tradition with that kind of style? My opportunity in China happened kind of uh, serendipitously. There's this visionary architect in China named Mai Yansong, and he started up a studio called MAD, Mad Studio. I didn't mention this earlier, but architecture schools love to take students out to the world for a summer studio, for example. I went on a study trip to China in 2007, and I taught myself basic Mandarin. I can't explain it. It's not that I think I have this kind of crazy gift for languages. I, I just can't explain it, but I picked it up. And then one year later, I find that Ma Yansong was at a local architecture school because he had published a book and I approached him and I introduced myself in Mandarin and he was really taken aback by that. And that earned me a breakfast with him a few days later. I showed him my portfolio and that's how I got my job in China. I mentioned that he's, he's visionary. So he himself is Chinese. Um, however, he's interested in an evolutionary future for Chinese architecture which is rooted in the thousands of years of rich Chinese cultural and architectural traditions. So I was fully on board for what he was trying to achieve, because when you look at the work from, from Mad Studio, um, it, it doesn't look traditional per se, but it does feel familiar, even though some things might look like spaceships, for example. There's a lot of history to draw on, a lot of tradition, a lot of culture, a lot of precedence. And all of that folds in to opportunities for innovating on what the Chinese built environment could look like. Is there there's the same interest in space, light, well-being in a building as they are in crash development, how we stereotypically associate uh, buildings with uh, Chinese cities? Well, I'll begin by asking you if, first of all, you've heard of something called feng shui. Oh, yes, mm -hmm. of course. So feng means wind and shui means water. That's really what feng shui means. It's two words put together. And it is a set of guiding principles that will help you position or locate a town. It will guide you in orientation of a house. It'll even help you in locating a mirror within the house. So uh, the Chinese culture has a long tradition of finding the best kind of relationship of location between mountains, uh, bodies of water, uh, and that perseveres to this day. So they're very much interested in uh, the well-being, 
um, in the built environment with how it looks, how spacious it is uh, with light and space. Uh, one notable aspect of your design in China and elsewhere is also the view and particularly a vista on the green spaces. How important is that for you and also the people you're working with or working for in China and elsewhere? So landscape or views to it, vistas to it, it's, it's valued by the Chinese people. It's also valued by myself, yourself. And that's more about biophilia, which is incorporating nature into the built environment. You think of the stories of factory towns and in, in the uh, Industrial Revolution and how poor the quality of life was. Um, it's, it's essential, it's understood these days that open spaces are important to a, a better quality of life. So it's important to the Chinese, it's important to you and me, uh, and it transcends a specific group of people or culture. And how do you feel about the, the description that some of the, your designs are traditionalist minimalism, kind of a combination between the two? Is that a fair description or is that too generalized? No, I think that's an interesting analysis, traditional minimalist. Um, I, I like to think I'm progressive, which doesn't automatically mean that you remove something traditional from an equation. But my design tastes, there's a great range of them. You know, uh, I'll appreciate neoclassical designs all the way through to spaceships we can inhabit today, for example, like Zaha Hadid designs, for example. There's room for variety, but I believe that material keeps us grounded. And uh, what I mean by that is that although materials can't speak, they have a way of showing you if you're either being clever or frivolous with what you're designing. And this might give way to a minimalistic expression. Um, so that, that talks to the kind of minimalist portion of the traditional minimalist tag you brought up. I mentioned that there's room for variety. And a lot of what I work on architecturally it, it, it doesn't land from outer space. It exists within a community that's already there where people already live and work. Uh, and, and so the context is important. The townscape is important. It forms the kind of architectural decisions you make on what you believe um, would not only fit the client brief, but make something interesting and elevate the, the quality of the, the neighborhood because of it. You design apartments, houses, hotels, buildings in general, but also shoes. Is there a connection? And can you learn something? Can we learn something even from your design of a building when drawing up plans for a product like a shoe and vice versa? Well, for your listeners who uh, don't know yet, yes. Um, not, I, I studied architecture. I work in the architecture industry. But I took some time out a few years ago to start my own shoe brand. It always makes for an interesting story because it doesn't instantly sound like there's a connection. However, I went to two architecture schools, one for my bachelor's degree and one for my master's degree. And at the end of both of those two programs, I miraculously had two opportunities to design footwear. And it all came about kind of serendipitously. But the, the first opportunity was in my undergrad architecture school in my final year, where there was this open call for entries to design women's sandals. And the company that hosted that design competition was actually started by a famous architect in the 70s or 80s, thereabouts. And so in a way, I got into uh, shoes through a dead architect. There's a more substantial connection between architecture and shoes. So I moved to London in 2000 and uh, lived there ever since. And if you want to do something in fashion, 
London's a great place to be. And if you want to do something very innovative in fashion, London is especially the place to be because there are people that are very excited about what you're doing and they want to help you. And that was really a kind of people want to say that maybe London might be a cold place if you're an outsider. But really, there is a warmth in the fashion industry uh, in London. And what I noticed is that there are many fashion designers in London who design garments, but very, very few who design shoes. It made me wonder, do people perceive that there's a risk with designing shoes as opposed to designing garments? Let's simplify it into kind of two important things about shoes. There is a design of footwear, but there's also the life safety aspect. Now think of the responsibilities of an architect. So we design what our communities look like, what buildings look like, but we're also responsible for the life safety of people who use the buildings and who live around the buildings. And so I think this heritage of design and uh, life safety that gives confidence to an architect to take on an opportunity to design a smaller structure, but still an important structure that has to hold the weight of humans as they're being active. I never actually was trained in designing footwear. I didn't have kind of the time or the money to enroll in a program or, or, or workshop. And so what I did is I used the same software that I designed buildings in to design shoes. And I used the same robots like 3D printers or CNC machines or laser cutters to fabricate the shoes. And so I learned how to make shoes through a digital process that let me reverse engineer them. Designing digitally is interesting because it means that a building can be a shoe and a shoe can be a building. And what I mean by that is um, when you're in design software, you can zoom in and out of whatever you're designing. Uh, and so scale is kind of relative in that sense. And so depending on how far you zoom into a shoe, it could actually look like a building. And there are some of the shoes that I've designed that would make for amazing interior design settings. Do you ever see yourself designing a building that looks like a shoe? Well, when I when I give lectures, I you know I ask the question, um, what's the relationship between architecture and shoes? And I show a um, picture of the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. And then the next slide is you just turn them upside down and put them under people's feet. So in a sense, yeah. In terms of hotels and apart hotels, what do you see the future for them? And are the big chains playing their part in design that takes into consideration things like space, well-being, carbon neutral and all that? Definitely. So it's, it's important. Uh, it's more important than it's ever been. Um, the general discussion of sustainability. There are targets set locally and nationally for 2030 and 2050 to become net zero carbon neutral. But that's it's a lot to unpack in terms of future of hotels and, and are the big chains playing their part. I, I think if we break it down into kind of the discussion of the future of hotels, I'm, I'm, I don't have statistics at my fingertips. I don't know where it's happening, how often it's happening. But I do hear from the hospitality industry that customers are asking for it. And of course, hotel brands, large and small, they cater to their customers. So whether there are national targets for a more sustainable future or whether it's a customer saying, I want something uh, that looks or feels more sustainable, they're going to receive it because hospitality is all about the guest experience. On the guest experience front, in terms of the future of hotels, there are a lot of improvements in digital technologies that help with the guest experience. 
things like self check-ins, things like having a, an app on your phone that when you're inside your room, you can control things in the room. Things that can be automated are being uh, experimented with across the world, across brands, from back of house functions all the way through to things that guests experience directly. But ultimately, the future of hotels is that we're all moving towards a more sustainable practice, not only for the guest experience, but because of climate change and these targets set locally and nationally. I want to talk to you about and see if you can explain how architecture and construction for the hospitality industry, which is usually on a grand scale, takes on board ecological concerns, can teach us lessons for, for smaller scale buildings. That's an interesting point of view. What can the bigger buildings teach us for the smaller buildings? Bigger construction projects, they have an economy of scale that smaller construction projects don't. However, they stand to make the biggest changes with the the fewest moves or steps, simply because of the sheer size of their supply chain and and the quantities of materials and services uh, that are required for larger developments. I tend to see it a different way, uh, that are there things that big construction projects can learn from small construction projects? And and that's because any complex problem, it might be beneficial to zoom in on one aspect of it to understand it more clearly. Uh, And then to get to grips with a few of these individual aspects of a complex problem to then approach the overall complex problem. So Think of smaller construction buildings, if you will, as kind of workshops for various individual aspects of larger uh, construction projects. That's not to say there's a one-to-one relationship. However, there's a lot of concrete and steel in big projects, whereas smaller projects, you're looking more at masonry and timber. However, there is steel in uh, smaller construction projects, and I believe that innovations in modern methods of construction uh, with steel framing or offsite construction, are now being explored for their fitness in smaller construction projects. And when I mean fitness, I mean for their potential to be uh, sustainable buildings and to be low energy buildings. So rather than saying there's the big teaches the little or the little teaches the big, that there's opportunities to learn in both directions. For the construction industry. Given your interaction with the hotel hospitality sector, have you seen an upturn in business post COVID? I have, yes. Um, during COVID, especially in the early days, hospitality was holding its breath, so to say. However, the hospitality industry, even though they were dealing with a lot of uncertainty, they were still early leaders in making interiors safe for guests and diners, for example. There was also uh, a lot of charitable opportunities where hotels who wouldn't have visitors or hotels that wouldn't have their typical customers uh, because of lockdowns would actually open up their hotel rooms to homeless people or disadvantaged people, which was an amazing story throughout the pandemic. And I, I feel like the hospitality industry is roaring back now. Lots of people uh, kind of um, going to their pre-2019 levels of finding new sites, designing new hotels, starting construction on those hotels. So, yeah, I I think it's come back very optimistic and resilient. 
looking ahead, what what are the, the the projects that you're working on that excite you that are coming up? Yes, I, I have the benefit of loving what I do, loving where I work, loving the kind of work that I do. Uh, might sound soppy, uh, but um, I'm working on a variety of projects. They're in the hospitality sector. They're in the residential sector. Interestingly, these days, uh, there's kind of a, I'm not sure if it's actually a word, but a hybridity uh, between residential and hospitality sectors. The interesting thing is that you can draw from one sector uh, to innovate in the other sector. And so uh, hopefully not in the too distant future, uh, there is going to be a few buildings throughout London and the, the rest of the country um, that really do liven up their communities. Do you mean in practical terms that there could be a hospitality building, a hotel or so on and so forth in the center of a residential, a new residential area that, that, that's sort of integrated with it? Is that what you're talking about? There is a lot of that um, emerging on lots of streets throughout London, for example, and across the country. You might consider that a hotel uh, maybe a decade ago would be a place only for people staying at the hotel. Uh, however, I wonder, Henry, if you've been to a hotel recently to the lobby just for a coffee or to set up your laptop or hold a meeting. Yeah, sure. So this whole kind of the evolution of co-working uh, over the last decade. Uh, it's become a kind of integral part of the brief that when you design a hotel, it's not completely a private building. The hotel integrates into the community and provides publicly accessible uses as well. Just exactly for what I just brought up with a place for you to go have a coffee, hold a meeting, open up your laptop. And there are a lot of innovations in residential developments, the larger ones having a kind of mixed use component with maybe some commercial um, in parts of the development that benefit from a treatment of what we call the front of house, a place that's meant to be used by a variety of people. Some of them might be residents, some of them might be staying at a hotel, and others might just be people in the public that want to pop in or be invited to come in. And so that's really what I mean by this kind of blending of the two sectors that I'm finding really interesting. And it's this. Um, experience and hospitality that is enabling this innovation that we're bringing into our residential designs as well these days. So when, when you're talking about designing and helping the construction of a hotel, it's not just for bums on beds, it's for lots of other things to put it crudely. Well, you know, they say bums on seats, but I guess there's bums on beds too, but there's whole bodies on beds too, aren't there? Yeah, it's quite. Um, but it's also the food and beverage aspect of it. It's also the, the meeting aspect of it. More and more hotel brands are kind of expanding uh, what they would consider to be part and parcel of a, of a cohesive offering. It's not just the hotel room. It's not just potentially a spa, um, but it's also a place for co-working or a place to hold meetings. And not the large ones like conferences. I mean, conferences and hotels have had a relationship for a very long time but more on the on the small groups scale. You've worked all over the world. What would you say is your overall philosophy of design? Oh gosh, that's a tough one, Henry. Any building you design is of a time and a place. Any action that you take in this world is of a time and a place. And so on some kind of fundamental level, I'm less interested in plonking a building from outer space anywhere in the world, whether it's London or the US or in China and more interested in understanding the area, the context where, where architecture takes place. That kind of 
looseness or, or generalization. And that kind of uh, broad framework, it, it enables an application onto any type of development, uh, any sector, whether it's private or public, whether it's large or small, whether it's residential or hospitality or office or commercial. So ultimately, it's not a one-size-fits-all philosophy. We did mention throughout this talk about sustainability, and I mentioned where, whether it's going to come from kind of government-mandated targets or if it's going to come from customers, what's going to drive construction and brands to, to be more sustainable. And my kind of clarion call is that we have the tools these days, both kind of analog and digital to design buildings that are beautiful, but also don't cost the earth. We've had the tools and the know-how for thousands of years on how to design sustainable buildings. What I'm seeing is a kind of return to uh, a more considered approach of before you get too far ahead of a, of a design that you just kind of take a step back and try to appreciate the climate factors. What, what's the orientation? Where is south? Where do we put windows? And the, the brilliant thing about that is it allows you to design whatever you want. It just means that fundamentally you're working with the climate rather than against it. And so I'm looking forward to a future where more architects, developers, contractors are wondering whether or not the sustainable credentials uh, on a fundamental level have been properly assessed for whichever development they're working on. So I'm very optimistic. This is Constructive Voices. So there you go, Pete. Uh, very, very interesting guest again this time, as always. And, and as we said right at the beginning, Brian's experience across various cultures and combining different design ideas uh, into what he's doing. Just a fascinating guest, as always. I don't know how we keep doing this in Constructive Voices, but what, a, what an amazing guest. And, and what a brilliant piece of journalism there by Henry as well. Like the questions that he asked... Um, and and the information that that he got there just top class. You know, so many interesting things out of that conversation there. You know, right from hearing about how Brian got into architecture in the first place, then the journey that he took. You know, having the foresight to learn Mandarin and then to you know approach what was an iconic architect at the time. And by having the foresight or, or, or having the presence of mind to to put himself into that position, created opportunity for him. And he took that opportunity with two hands. I was really interested as well. Uh, the couple of questions that Henry asked there towards the end of the interview, really, really good stuff. Um, we, we all know about how smaller construction projects, we always feel that sometimes maybe the larger project uh, construction projects give more information down to the smaller projects. But, you know, in this interview, we kind of heard that sometimes that can be the opposite way around as well. And that's simply because of the of the the type of construction and the type of buildings that are being regularly used in in China now are are these big buildings that have small compartments in them that people then live in you know so it's really really interesting stuff a real insight into a different culture and um, learn so much from it and um, a lot, lot of good stuff in there and, and and a lot of positive stuff in there as well Unfortunately, my my Chinese knowledge doesn't go too much further than the local takeaway. I have to say, <laughs> it's, it's my favorite though. Every every weekend, but um, you know, really to hear somebody who's who's uh, who's you know got his got his uh, feet on the ground in that culture and the fact that we're actually not that different. We're all thinking along the same lines. Really great stuff. 
Yeah. I mean, the one question I have for you, though, Pete, is obviously you've been in construction, you know, all your adult life. Um, has Brian in any way influenced you to also look at designing and, and building shoes? <laughs> Yeah, like that was that was so cool to hear. You know, when you when you when you listen to, to to Brian and you listen to how passionate is he is about what he loves, which is architecture. But it's fairly clear to hear he's also very passionate about the the systems and the programs that are available, and he's used them to their maximum. He he obviously understands them very well, and he's very passionate about them and the, the abilities that they have. But what a clever man to uh, to use those programs to actually develop a footwear and he, he he obviously has a passion for fashion that that rhymes i'm a poet and i didn't know but it's such a cool thing and such an interesting thing so yeah the peter builder uh work, work boot will be coming out soon so don't you worry <laughs> i look forward to it um we're sticking with, ar- with architecture for our next episode which will be joe jack williams he's an associate researcher and passive house consultant and uh, he is going to be talking about sustainability in design and the social design agenda. He's one of the speakers at Footprint Plus in June on the south coast of the UK. Uh, you can find more information on their website, footprintplus.com. Uh, but yeah, looking forward to that as well and, and talking more about sustainability and how that sort of starts off in the design process and, and, and how we're moving things towards the low-carbon and greener economy that we all need. Yeah, absolutely, Steve. Like we get to, the opportunity to speak to these people on constructive voices. We get to upskill ourselves and, and upgrade our, our 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 software and our and our knowledge in our in our heads um, for for all, uh, the battle that we have going ahead, but also for our businesses, which I always like to, to mention. Most of the people, if not every person that's that's listening to us, is is in business, um, and therefore you know business is a big part of this. I always say this that when you hear other people's perspectives and you get to listen to different people you get to learn something from them that maybe you can use in your own business and again when it comes to the likes of footprint plus um and and those type of events and also uh, listening to people who are involved in those type of things to get uh, that information and to to be able to bring that on board with what you're already doing it's it's such a positive thing and it's and it's such an advantage for for us in construction and um, so yeah so many so many great things um, really looking forward to hearing um, our next guest next week and, and looking forward to the great things that are coming across the summer as well. Absolutely. Okay, Pete, I've got to let you go and design those shoes and <laughs> talk to you next time. Cheers, Steve. Thank you very much, man. Bye-bye. And that's all for this episode of Constructive Voices. Please take a moment to share it with others who may find it interesting. Follow or subscribe to get the latest episodes automatically on your favourite podcast app and rate and review the podcast if you can. You can also listen to the latest episode by saying, Alexa, play Constructive Voices podcast. Here's Constructive Voices. Here's the latest episode. And on our website, where there's lots more information too. That's constructive-voices.com. Don't forget the dash. Until next time, thanks for listening. You're really helping us build something. Mm-hmm.